0: First of all, I realize this is probably not how you thought the story would start, not with a big shiny moon or a city that could look stunning in spite of itself, or me. Welcome to the second part of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Look at the Batman Portion of the DC Universe.
1: They're really making movies about every superhero.
0: Listen in as Garrett. I look amazing. You guys look okay. Matt.
1: God damn it. Well, what are you waiting for? Kick the hell out of me and get your standing ovation.
0: And Adam. Uh,
1: this guy?
0: Really? Continue their look at all cinematic incarnations starring the Gate Crusader. I, Bruce Wayne, billionaire bon vivant, gallivanter playboy, Gotham's most eligible bachelor, like 90 years in a row. Included on this leg of the retrospective are reviews of Batman the Killing Joke. By clinging to reality, you're denying the reality of the situation. Suicide Squad.
1: The world changed when Superman flew across the sky. And then it changed again when he didn't.
0: The Lego Batman movie. I never sleep because I'm too busy fighting criminals and saving Gotham City 24-7 Justice League I can't tell you how much I appreciate you doing this and Teen Titans go to the movies
1: this is a DC movie
0: don't forget to keep checking in each week as we are leading up to a review of Matt Reeves latest Dark Knight incarnation The Batman
1: I can already see Things will get worse before they get better.
0: All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media.
1: You ready? Let's go. Batman, The Killing Joke, released July 25th, 2016. Budget was $3.5 million. Box office, $4.4 million. And this is directed by Sam Liu. Alright, I'm going to my... Very angry schedule maker. Why are we doing this, Goudreau?
2: Two words, Adam Bunch, because he mentioned <laughs> that this got a... And I was completely oblivious to this fact. I had forgotten that this got a theatrical release. And I say that as somebody who went to go see this in the theater, because...
1: That, <laughs> <laughs> you went to go see it in the theater, and you forgot that you saw it in the theater. Yes, I did.
2: Well, I have, I have quite the story with this particular movie once we get this part out of the way. But Fathom Entertainment did this as a one-night-only sort of release. And it wasn't a national one, per se. Like, it, it it didn't play in every single movie theater. You had to go to, like, a, like an AMC or a, some kind of big chain to go see it. And it was for one night. After that, it was going to be a direct-to-video release, like all of the DC animated movies, because DC's bread and butter has been animation. For all the ass-kicking that Marvel has done on screen, live-action-wise, since the MCU started, DC's beaten Marvel to the punch when it comes to animation and not just beating them to a punch, beating them into a pulp and then thrown them in front of a car to be run over. Cause there are so many movies in, that DC has put out since Master of the Phantasm with various continuities, original stuff, a lot of adaptations. They're not all Batman because it's DC, but because of this story and the brand recognition that it has, to the hardcore Batman fans, and even the casual Batman fans, (coughs) Jim Burton, excuse me, it made sense to make this a one-night-only sort of release to get some extra revenue and and get some hype, because this was something that, we'll talk about this momentarily, did have a lot of
1: buzz behind it
2: for a multitude of reasons.
1: All right, then I'll have to just move that question over to our third on this podcast, Mr. Adam Bunch. Adam, why are we doing this?
0: Because Adam brought up that this looks like in movie theaters. Yeah, this was one, I saw this in movie theater, just like Matthew did. But not only was this really primed to kind of promote, the DVD that was coming out, I mean, with the, the DVD came out one week later. Like, it wasn't like a big wait, and a lot of the showings this had sold out majorly. A lot of uh, cities added one extra showing the next day, which netted like an extra couple hundred thousand or something. This was pretty big. It was Fathom Events' biggest and widest screening that they had. And it was for a DC animated movie. Kind of crazy. They'd been on a roll for a while, especially with some things that got some amazing recognition that I'm kind of sad that we're not doing, but I think we might have to just because sometimes quality wins out. But things like the Flashpoint Paradox and what's probably been the best Batman animated adaptation, uh, The Dark Knight Returns, Um, seminal works, on the comic stage and this one here, it's a very polarizing book for a lot of people because it's Alan Moore, who is a polarizing figure in the comics world to begin with. Brian Boland doing amazing art. I mean, this is known as kind of the template in the Bible for not Batman as much as Joker. I mean, so much of Joker's story comes from this, from what people know. And when it comes to the ending of this story, it gets very, very contentious. And it might on this podcast as well, because I have a take and not everybody agrees with it. But we're doing this because really it brought two people out of retirement for voices with Mark Hamill and Kevin Conroy, who said that they were done doing this and there was only one story that was going to bring them back. And I don't know if they're at the top of their game doing it, but they came back to do it and I'm glad they did.
1: I guess if we're going to be doing 11 Children of the Corn films, I guess we can get away with this one. (laughs) I do remember the hype around this because there was a lot of talk about it around the time Comic-Con was coming around and that Mark Hamill and Kevin Conway had come out of retirement, as you said, Adam. But honestly, I had no interest in seeing it. The only way I would have seen it is if they would have done it live action, which brings up the question, why do it this animated hour 15-minute movie when you could probably make a shit ton of money if you get – Ben Affleck and another person to play Joker, the 10,000th person to play Joker, together, and you just put the movie out then. Why is it we have to go to animation for this? Is it just because of the voices? Is that the only reason? I
2: think there's a couple reasons why. Number one is because of Mark Hamill. He always said that
1: this is the one story
2: he would come out of retirement to do. Part of that statement, I think, though, was a bluff on his part because deep down, I don't think he, he thought they would ever adapt this, which brings me to my second point. Why you don't do this in live action, or why they have not, is twofold. It's incredibly short. The graphic novel is maybe 50 pages,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and there's quite a bit of it that is strictly drawn with no text, which, by the way, one of the, the, the cornerstones of the book, as Adam said, is Brian Boland's artwork, because he is someone who almost exclusively did covers. So the idea of him doing an entire book was very rare when this book first came out. But because of the length, you would really have to pad this out to get an hour-and-a-half, two-hour live-action movie. Because the Killing Joke portion of this is only about half, maybe a little bit more, if you do a specific breakdown. But I never thought they'd do it in live-action. Also, because so many of the live-action films have borrowed from it. We joked about Tim Burton, took some Mm -hmm. stuff, Keith Ledger's Joker. His kind of worldview, how he explains himself, that's pretty close to the way the Joker speaks in this book. So I think there's a a lot of factors playing against it, why they, they didn't do a strict adaptation. And the last one is, two words, Alan Moore. Hollywood has taken all the stabs at that corpse to bring it to life. And to be quite frank, I don't think any of them have worked, at least in my humble estimation. Maybe we'll talk about Watchmen at some point down the line. Probably sooner rather than later, <laughs> how things are going.
0: Yeah, from Hell, but, maybe.
1: Yeah, from Hell, there's V for Vendetta. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, which the fact that that... Was, I definitely want to cover. Uh, I want to talk about that movie. Yeah, the movie that,
2: quite that quite forced Chuck Connery into retirement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why. You, I don't think you will ever see a, a straight... Live action adaptation. Hell, they did it in fucking Gotham for God's sake. That that was a close. Just changed the characters. Instead of Barbara Gordon getting shot, it's Selena Kyle, mm-hmm. and then, and he's not the Joker due to legal reasons. But <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's so many reasons why I don't think you will ever see a, a as close to a literal translation as at least in live action. And we'll talk about whether or not this is a literal translation to begin with.
1: All right. So all that being said sounds like both of you saw this in theaters, I'm taking. um, Adam, you saw this in theaters?
0: Saw it in theaters, took my wife to see it, actually. And I was excited that they were putting this out. I had some friends of mine that had gone to Comic-Con and interviewed the entire cast coming out of the screening and everything else. And I did everything I could to not pay any attention to anything until I got a chance to go see this. So I missed all the news. I missed all the, I'll call it, the controversy that spun out the second that this thing debuted at Comic-Con. And I'm glad I did avoid it, because at least I got to go in kind of fresh-headed the first
1: time. And, Matt, go ahead, get into it. Why? Uh, what's your story behind this, seeing this? I teased this slightly at the end of the BBS show, which is funny that this came out
2: a couple months after Batman v Superman. Because <laughs> if that movie wasn't controversial enough, this movie doubled down on pissing off Batman fans. <laughs> because I, I remember going to see this, and because it was a one-night-only release, it was a, a full-screening. And it was one of the most awkward viewing experiences I've ever had. For For the fans, you could tell who had read the book, because they clearly had this visual and sometimes audible reactions to things that were transpiring on screen that carried over into the lobby as people were leaving the theater, where you could hear all the all the people saying, oh, but in the book they did this, or what the hell is that first 30 minutes? That didn't really tie into anything. There was uncomfortable laughter throughout the movie at things that I don't think were intended. It was just a very strange... It was not like that movie, Superman, where it was, you know, the atmosphere of a funeral. This one was more like watching a very offensive comedian on stage who tries to just get by on shock humor and and sexual innuendo, where there are some... Small amounts of enjoyment, but a lot of it is just awkward confusion. That's best I would describe my oh, screening. And I, I went by myself, and I could not believe how many kids were in that theater. Always, oh damn, always blows my mind. Like I'm glad, you know, Adam. He's read the book. He has he has yep. enough conscience to not take his daughter to go see this. <laughs> but hell, I saw kids going to see Watchmen, and they proceeded to leave ten minutes into the movie. Oh.
1: <laughs> I almost left ten minutes into that movie. Yeah, it should come to, as to no shock to anybody. This is my very first time watching this. I had zero interest, honestly, when this was coming out. Like when when it came to these animated films, maybe when I was ten or twelve, I would have really dug into them. And Marvel did this too. You know, Marvel would put supplemental stories on their DVDs and Blu-rays, starting towards the end of Phase One. It, it's just it's not something that interests me. You know, I don't think it enhances anything for me. And it, the fact that this was released in theaters. A Fandango release is, uh, is mind-blowing to me, honestly, once we get into the film. And, you know, it's also mind-blowing to me that this thing cost $3.5 million to make. It made back its budget and more. So, it, it's kind of weird that it was only one night.
0: There are numbers out there when it takes into account downloads uh, and Blu-rays and everything else. And I want to say they've given this like a total gross of about $12 million. Which, for something like that, I mean, love it or hate it, but that's a damn big hit for as let's call it a straight-to-DVD animated movie. Mm.
1: All right, with all that out of the way, let's see what exactly the big controversy is, because honestly, guys, I pride myself on looking at backstories and things that have to do with this, but with this particular one, what I chose to do was I just left it to the boys. This, I'm going to go through the plot, and you guys can stop me when this says there's a controversy with it. I have my theories as to what it could be, but let's uh, let's just dive into the plot, and you guys can stop me whenever, and we could talk about these controversies, all right? You teased me, because I thought we were going to talk about the actual boys, and I got all (laughs) excited, because I'd rather discuss that. All right, so we're getting a voiceover by Batgirl, and she's... Stop controversy. Oh, boy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm teasing, but just as a heads up, because you have no idea, this is not how the killing joke starts. (laughs) Silly
2: Pat, the first 30 minutes of this movie... Is not it is entirely original. This is not in the in the graphic novel whatsoever. So half of this movie is a fabrication.
0: Made up to pad the to make it a feature length.
1: Can I give something away right now? The first thirty minutes of this movie is my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> As some you know
0: what? As somebody who's not familiar with I'm not entirely surprised and I've heard that. But yeah, this entire beginning is given, I think Brian Azarello's given credit, but really it's, this is Bruce Timm at work for this entire Batgirl. It's a Batman the Animated Series episode, Mm -hmm. pretty much, and that's what he's created to butt these two up against each other. In DC Comics, they did do a Batgirl solo issue to kind of give her a little more oomph before the killing joke came out, because they didn't know... What happens to Barbara Gordon would matter, and that's what they try, and I'm going to really give quotes on try to do here with this. But <laughs> sorry that we're about two seconds into this, but yes, Barbara Gordon voiceover, this entire, as Matt said, everything that we get here until rain happens later, all made up.
2: Not only that, the movie has to apologize for it, because their first line is, this is not the story you think it is.
0: Which is clever. Yes, it is so, so meta. Yep.
2: It's meta, and the Azarello thing w- was interesting for me because he is a, a writer who has done some interesting stuff. He did a, a standalone Joker graphic novel that I like a lot that actually does bear some influence on the next movie we're going to talk about. But he said something at Comic-Con that really kind of irked me. He was talking about how, oh, we use the first 30 minutes to make... Because they did the panel after they showed exactly. the movie. They talked about how... You know we we use the first thirty minutes to make Batgirl a stronger character, and somebody in the crowd goes by using sex and he yelled, <laughs> "Say that again <laughs> <Don't> you be... <laughs> That's great so it was very, it's a very contentious like this movie is very like if you thought baby v Superman
1: was was a debate this is this is a Trump rally where people are just yelling at <laughs> each other so question then so this movie is an hour yep. and fifteen minutes, not long by a long shot. Mm-hmm. And we're padding it with 30 minutes of story that's not even in that book? Yep. (laughs) Which is why I think what they should have done,
2: and I'm going to be saying that a lot throughout this movie, is you take another Joker story and you just combine them. Like, do Batman and the Man Who Laughs that Ed Brubaker wrote. Because that's almost about the same length, and you do a double feature. It was done with the best of intentions. But I think this also exposes, in a lot of ways, Bruce Timm... Who has always been accused, kind of, of being a bit sleazy, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit misogynistic, on full display to the point where I swear to God, Frank Miller was an unofficial screenwriter on the first thirty minutes of this movie.
0: So you said Frank? You're saying Frank Miller? I had a feeling that if if Joss Whedon could also animate, no. he would be uh, writing this no, first thirty minutes. No, no, no. This is. Yep, I'm going there. This is somebody who's pretending to be feminist and comes across like a fucking. But at least, douche. at
1: least Joss Whedon is. Fuck, he's clever, but. Let's get into this. So, the voiceover, she said, in the voiceover, she says that she's been with Batman for three years. Been with Batman for three years. Is this fighting crime with Batman, or is this actually being with Batman for three years?
0: This is fighting, fighting crime. crime. This is okay. being Batgirl. Be, yeah, actually donning the bat, being Batgirl for okay. three years.
1: She spies on Gordon and Batman, and we're seeing a police chase. And I must say, for an animated movie, and I said this way back when we did Mask of the Phantasm, this police slash. Batman chase isn't half bad. I kind of like this, actually. God, we're going to start
2: fighting already? Okay. As someone who has seen pretty much all these DC
1: animated movies, they took a
2: story that does not have a car chase, and they still found a way to crowbar a car chase into this movie. I complained about this with Under the Red Hood as a really bad one. It feels like a, a, a stamp that all these movies need to have, where we need to have some kind of a car chase. And to be honest, I think a lot of the animation in this is pretty bad. A lot of it's very stiff, especially when the characters walk. Some of them look like they stiff. Sticks up their mm-hmm. asses. The one positive, I'll say, out of everybody, I think Tara Strong gives the best vocal performance. And that's how this feels like a, a reunion of the animated series, because while she didn't voice her in the original, mm-hmm. she did New Adventures On, which is when they really emphasized her as a part of the Bat family. But this prologue begs the question of where are Dick and or future Robins? Where is this in the timeline? Are
1: they even in the killing
2: joke? No, they're not. But in most iterations, Robin comes before Batgirl.
1: Um, And there's been, you know, like I said on multiple shows,
2: multiple Robins. Barbara has hooked up with at least two of them. Uh, Although,
1: uh, speaking of hookups, we'll save that for 20 minutes
2: down the line. All right.
1: Batgirl gets kicked out of the truck, and then the thug gets bumped by Batman. Batman then interrogates the thug. Meanwhile, mob boss Carlos Francisco. Now, this guy, not in the book as well?
0: Nope, not whatsoever. In fact, all the characters even are ones that we haven't seen
1: before, I believe. I don't believe there's anybody
0: here we've seen before, including the mob boss. I know Paris Franz, like, none of it.
1: And, Matt, you're, you're complaining, you know, okay, I can see the animation part, but... Again, you have to pad this thing because everyone was so intent on getting this killing joke made, they didn't think about the fact that they had to pad this thing. So you have to do something in the beginning here.
2: You did, but you should have come up with something better because I think also the arc and the parallel that they're trying to establish to tie this together with the actual killing joke is not fulfilled. And I think it's also partially a betrayal at a certain point.
0: When it comes to the decisions of what can happen with one bad day, amazingly we're recording this on the day that dc starts a brand new series of one-shot comics called batman colon one bad day going through his rogues gallery but when this is supposed to be all about what can happen when somebody's pushed to the brink on one bad day jokers what what takes him from being who he was to who he is that should have been the crux of this because as i said this is at least to me when i read the killing joke batman's in it batman and to me, crosses a line at the end, but it's it is Joker and it is Jim Gordon, and that could have been the focus and should have been the focus. In fact, even here at the beginning, maybe turn this into a uh, almost like an episode of Gotham Central, you know, where it's really about Jim Gordon and and him not snapping later on after what Joker does to his daughter.
1: So mob boss Carlos Francisco he laces into his nephew about losing four guys and a hundred grand, and he tells Paris his nephew because Paris France to get his money back. Waka waka. <laughs> Barbara, meanwhile, she tells a classmate that she's involved with somebody, so she doesn't want to swim in a lake full of dudes. And <laughs> Oh, you mean the gay, the, gay,
0: the gay
2: guy from Catwoman makes a yeah. second appearance? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Just as offensive. Wow.
1: <laughs> They're robbing a vault before Batgirl interrupts again. Paris becomes impressed. Borderline enchanted as she fights Paris, who drugs her, and this allows him to take the money.
2: Okay, here's where I talk about how th- this does not
1: fulfill what it should.
2: The, I think the point of this, specifically the, the problem, is her, this is her Joker, basically, this Paris Fonz okay. character. For someone as intellectually savvy as Barbara Gordon is, which is teased with the fucking stinger at the end of this movie, she's bested by a guy who only looks at her as a sexual object. They also imply that he is about to rape her with that yeah. drug, but she gets away. Yep. gets away just in time. Everyone in this story views Barbara Gorin as an object of sex. She is objectified by everybody. Unfortunately, that is a criticism that sort of the the book has never gotten past, that she is strictly, arguably, the question is, does Joker make a sexual advance at her? Like, does he commit rape? when he takes those pictures. Once we get to that scene, I'll I'll give my verdict. But to not just give a response to that, but to double down on it, I think is just amplifying the criticisms that people have and you're opening yourself up to all the more problems. If you really wanted to make this work, to give her that line that Batman doesn't cross, she should kill this guy at the end and she realizes she went too far and that's why she retires. That would work slightly better. As it stands, everything with her character... And with this guy does not work for me at all.
0: Yeah, I can't disagree a bit. In addition to her being an object, what really irks me and upsets me is you take a Batgirl who is in the anim- in, in B-Taz, the Batman the animated series, she is a fully fleshed out, wonderful crime fighter. They make her just, just ineffectual here. You know, it's like she's Batgirl year one, like she's a trainee. And that completely contradicts with her opening statement that she's done it for years. It contradicts with Batman letting anybody don the bat until they're ready. It just, it doesn't jive with what's going on. And it's just, it's a failure of them writing and whatever Azzarello and Tim wanted to create here in this opening 30 minute. Cool. This is their own fanfic. I get it, but it does not jive with what came before and it doesn't jive with melding with the rest of the film.
1: Is this in continuity with anything?
0: This first portion here with nothing whatsoever. Now, the killing joke was never meant to be a part of continuity at all. It was its own thing. It does not have the Elseworlds label on it. For anybody that knows, Elseworlds is like multiverse city thing with DC. They've always put Elseworlds on it. They've done some great books that way. Look up Gotham by Gaslight. But no. DC has turned around after the success and after them going, you know what? Fuck Alan Moore. We're going to do whatever we want with what we own. And have kind of turned it into continuity when they want it to be. So yes and no, depending on what editor wants to touch it that week.
2: It's also not a continuation of Batman animated series in any way. Right. Because there's no Dick Grayson or Tim Drip to be found. And, and, And the new adventures, they especially Mystery of the Batwoman, which was the tie-in movie. They imply that Bruce and Barbara were in some kind of a physical relationship, but it's never explicitly stated. And even when they talk about it, Tim's kind of freaked out because he's a boy. He's a teenager. Uh So any discussion of sex will kind of, you know, he'll joke about it. But this is not in that timeline as well, because it's also treated like once you get to the actual killing joke part, that Batman and the Joker have a history, but it'd be nowhere near as lengthy and as confrontational as it should be if this takes place in that continuity
1: barbara wakes up to batman giving her a coffee and lecturing her on the fact that she should have waited for him before she went in and he tells her about paris franz he also becomes such the micromanager that he tells her to do what he says no questions asked Barbara says that she's seeing somebody but not dating and then loses it to her friend who is obviously insinuating that it's Batman. Say what you want about this dude. I do like the line when he says it and people say that the gay community is complicated. I don't know why. I, I just laughed really hard at that. But one time I got a reaction out of wa- this fucking movie. Because he's not wrong.
2: <laughs> but also all of Barbara's blow-ups, it feels like she's supposed to be in college But she's written, like, a 15-year-old. Yeah, that
1: was weird. I was going to ask you how old she
2: is. Yeah, exactly. She's in college age. Early 20s, I
0: would guess.
2: Yeah, especially if she's been with Batman for three years because in, like I said, not that this is tied in, but I'm pretty sure she's always been portrayed as a a college student because they didn't want to have her and Dick both be high school kids, and it makes sense for her to be in in between Dick and Tim as far as ages go. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Paris gets attacked by a boat gang, but he escapes underwater. And then Paris sends back her a video and tells her to get what he left for her at where they first met. So I have a problem with okay. this on a superficial level
2: because the killing joke, because of the time it was written at, does not possess any future technology. Like there's no cell phones because they didn't exist. By adding modern technology or at least what we perceive to be modern technology, it makes the actual killing joke portion feel all the more disconnected because there, there's really none of that because so much of it is a close to a direct lift as possible, with the exception of some Doc
1: This video makes Batman tell her to get off the case, and then Batman just takes off, finds the truck from the scene, and finds an iPad with a scavenger hunt put together by Paris. She <laughs> finds the body of Francisco, and Paris says that he's the new generation of gangster. Paris fights her as Batman shows up and once again saves her ass. So all of this. We're still in the first 30 minutes, correct? So none of this is in the book. Nope. And no, what my no problem, one
2: I'm numerous, I'm losing track of my fingers, is Barbara Gordon, this story happens to her. Everything happens to her. She is not really the catalyst for anything. And again, it just reinforces that she is a borderline plot device for the entire story, which is also the biggest critique that is leveled at Alan Moore's
1: writing. Batman tells her that she hasn't been taken to the edge of the abyss yet. And Batgirl takes exemption, and then they end up fighting on the roof.
2: So they don't just fight on the rooftop.
1: They have a
2: full-on sexual intercourse experience.
0: Batgirl climbs on top, mounts him, takes her top off, and yep.
2: I can't even explain how wrong of a decision this was. (laughs) You almost can't even quantify it. This is where... If it was a pro, if I went to go see this with a wrestling crowd, they'd be booing immediately. <laughs> you fucked up. Um, you fucked up. <laughs> yeah, literally. Literally,
0: this, this is oh. it's wrong. Well, it's
2: wrong, and it's a disservice for both of those wow. characters.
0: This is when in theater, and I'm sure Matts was the same way. Where everybody, I mean, because I don't think anybody was, especially, an in overly into the, you know, this art, this opening sequence. I think everybody was kind of trying to feel it out, see where it's going, and then this happens, and you could feel the collective. Of a couple hundred people just kind of their head like a dog. They heard a weird noise and went, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) And everybody was kind of looking around to go, that's fucked up, right? (laughs) And it's just, yeah, feels weird. Like, I don't have the age issue that some have because whatever she's to me has always been 22-ish. Batman's probably late 30s, you know. However, as a ward oh, not really a ward of his, but is a pseudo employee, as somebody who's under his wing. Haha! It's just—it's there's nothing about this that comes across as right. There's nothing that feels like it enhances what happens later. Both of them come off really fucking skeevy for it. Both of them do,
2: especially because that's the commissioner's daughter who he has yeah. a
0: very close relationship with.
1: Yeah,
2: and they, there's a lot of great drama that they got out of that relationship because. Gordon does not know she's Batgirl,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and, and there's a lot of a lot of great stuff they do once he actually finds out, and they, they do some really interesting stuff down the line. But I feel like that's a betrayal of Gordon's trust in Batman that he would not just not he he doesn't reject her advances. He he kind of gives into them because he grabs her ass, and he could have even knows. said He could have said at any point, stop or or kick him out. And for Barbara. She thinks the reason he is not talking to her is because they fucked. That's the only logic she can come up with. She
1: is portrayed to be so single-minded.
2: Like I said, it makes her come off as a high schooler who can only think about getting a good fuck.
1: Do we have Tim to blame for this, or do we have more to blame for this? I think this is Bruce Tim, because he, like I said, he's...
0: Yeah. He's got some art books out there as well, and he's an amazing artist, but he takes some of these adult animated characters and he makes them seem a couple years younger and draws them completely naked enough that it's just, it's, it comes across really fucking creepy. It really does. And I, I love beautiful nude art, but he comes across as that creepy uncle. You would not let fucking babysit your kids. Yeah.
2: He's the one that that pays for lunch and then follows you into the men's room.
1: Yeah. All
2: right. So, so they wake up (laughs) and they have the actual confrontation with Franz, Barbara, Eats the ever-living shit out of him. Doesn't kill him, which I think she should have done, and that, that should be the impetus for her retiring because she went too far. She throws her backpack of stuff. She has a good line. I can't leave smoke bombs in the apartment. That actually got a chuckle out of me. And she retires from being that girl.
1: So her impetus for leaving is the fact that she almost went too far, not that she did go too far. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, Batman's 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 Batman line God, earlier. This fucking storys fucking stories are fucking mess. They have a line
0: earlier where he's, you know, you haven't looked into the abyss like yeah. I have. And there's this part where she's beating the guy and and Batman's standing. He does not stop her. He doesn't. He's standing back, letting her. She's going to make that decision, which that I appreciate that scene. You know, he's not going to interfere. But she at least stops herself and goes, this is it. I like that ending of her making her own decision to stop. She's going to put her own stuff away and she's going to stop. She's not going to get it taken from her. She's going to stop being Batgirl. That part. Doesn't bug me.
2: It cuts to black, and we cut to go- uh, Batman teaming up with Harvey Bullock to go investigate a crime scene, which is also not in the book. Harvey Bullock, by the way, is a big character from the comics. He's sort of Gordon's superior slash partner, depending on who's writing him. Not that he has a big role in this to begin with, but they're all bodies that Batman realizes went missing three years ago. Obviously, it's the Joker's calling card, because all, they all have the richest grins, and they're all decayed. So then we cut to the opening scene from the comic, where Batman is walking to Arkham Asylum, and now we can actually talk about the comic book, which is really what I want to talk about. Because while I think we have told better Joker stories, I think Alan Moore doesn't give himself enough credit when he talks about, oh, yeah, I just, I don't think the book's that good. If this is what he considers bad writing, then I wish that was my low bar. To be perfectly So honest. he puts this book down? <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. he doesn't call it shit or anything, but he's like, I don't think it warrants the, because if you read any, like, Top five Batman graphic novels. This is on every single list. The biggest crack of shit is that Tim Burton's got a pull quote on the copy I have behind me. <laughs> yep, like, Mine as well. And there are two versions of this book, by the way, if anyone's interested. There's one, which is the original print, which is colored differently. It's very psychedelic with the, mm-hmm. the color palette that he used. And then there's a recolor that he did. Part of the deluxe edition, which has some additional concept art some additional short panels here and there. But the book opens exactly like this, where Batman's walking to Arkham. And it's great visual storytelling because Batman and Joker are always order and chaos, right? They're the two linchpins. Mm -hmm. Taking place in the rain and having the leaves blowing all over the place is the perfect personification of that because leaves have no choice but to be chaotic because they go wherever the wind takes them. And duality, who is the only villain you see in Arkham Asylum? Two-Face, who is the representation of that. That is very... It's both obvious, but it's also something that because it's a graphic novel, you can read past it and not think much of it. But there's a lot of stuff that's done through Bolin's amazing artwork that really aids what Moore does actually write.
0: This is when oh. Batman, yeah, goes goes into a cell and they have this little monologue that Batman has. is some of my mm. favorite writing when he's just, I want to talk about you, about me. I love this. And this is a Batman at the end. This is him. At the end of going, you know, fuck it, I'm going to give this one last shot. You know, to me, this is, I don't know what has happened to this Batman, but he knows that he's at the edge of breaking his rule of just being done with it. But he's going to at least give it a shot so he can say, I tried. Before I killed him, I fucking tried.
2: And I think that's why this book has the staying power that it does. It's the notion that Batman makes a conscious effort to try to empathize with the Joker and actually help him out. As far as the continuity, because it's a standalone, I think it's heavily inferred, at least in my headcanon, this has to take place after after death in the family. Yeah. The murder of Jason Todd, I think, is what has brought Batman to this point. And I say murder in quotes, by the way, because much like everyone in comic books, nobody stays dead. <laughs> and uh, Under the Red Hood is one that I definitely think we should talk about once we get the Patreon up and running. But yeah, he, th- this... You know, Garrett, I think it's interesting. I do Mark Hamill, and we found our Kevin Conroy, so we could probably do this as an audio book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, you guys say this isn't in continuity. Now, do we get any of Joker's backstory in that book? Oh okay. yeah, in this book,
0: the, from this point on, this is extremely faithful to the graphic novel.
1: Okay. Uh, what do you guys feel about that? Because I've always said, and I say this during our live action films, I say it all the time, I'm going to be saying it again here pretty soon. I don't mind flashbacks as much as if it enhances the character. What I do mind is when they do flashbacks and they're not telling us it's a flashback. It was a while where I didn't know if this was the Joker or if this was the gangster we saw earlier. I didn't know who the fuck this was for until you know a couple of scenes in. I was like, oh, okay, that's the Joker. But it See, kind of it- threw me off a bit.
0: On the comic page, the original and the recolored, the anniversary the edition, it's colored in a way that you, there's no doubt, because it, it's very se- toned that you know it's flashback. It's done in the movie, but much less so. They should have went full black and white or full, you know, and done it that way. But, yeah, it's, it's clear in the graphic novel when you're flashing it back to who he is. And
1: before. that's something you can do in the comic book. But to do it in a live-action film, it's much more difficult, and I don't think they really did a very good job of it. Well, that's the problem I have with with Alan Moore in general. Uh, Of course, Moore is notorious for not liking
2: any of his adaptations because he's of the mentality that adaptation is pointless because visual mediums are meant to be enjoyed in the way that they were initially intended. And his adaptations run all over the place. From Hell is very different. The Extraordinary Gentleman is very different. Watchmen is, of the live-action ones, it's the closest But even then, Snyder really changed the ending, uh, which I'd be very interested to talk about here. This is the most literal translation, but at the same time, storytelling in a comic operates on a very different level than what you can show on the screen because of the way your mind processes it. You are doing the voices in your head. You go at your own pace with a graphic novel. You can look at individual cells and really analyze them. With a movie, you have to follow along with it, and if you get lost... That's ultimately on you. So I can differentiate between what's the flashback and what's not because of the color palette and because I've read the the graphic novel. But I do think I don't call this a slavish adaptation, but I do call it a, a bit of a clumsy one because the translations are not or, or the transitions, I should say, are not executed the best. And these DC anime movies have done a lot of adaptations. Adam talked about The Dark Knight Returns. That's pretty damn close. Under the Red Hood's pretty different. Batman Hush is very different. <laughs> if you're, if you're fan, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that
0: fuck, sport. you want to see me pissed off. Uh,
2: you know what's funny? I, I think the movie kicks the shit out of the book, but we'll talk about that.
0: Oh, God yeah. Yep, that's coming up.
2: Yeah. And, the uh, folks. Yeah, so, so all in all, what you see from this point on, it's the words that Alan Moore wrote. It's a lot of the visuals. But the art style is also very different than what Brian Boland drew. There are shots that look amazing, but a lot of them are the stills. Whenever mm-hmm. stuff is moving, it doesn't evoke the graphic novel the way I think it should. And I find that to be a mistake.
1: So Batman finds Joker's calling card, and then Batman tells Alfred that he doesn't know Joker anymore more than when they started going after each other, which I thought was actually a kind of interesting take in that he is saying, you know what, we've been fighting each other for so long, yet I don't know another fucking thing about him than when we started.
2: Which I I, uh-huh. I always love. I love a Joker that, that is mysterious. And we did skip over a bit of the Joker stuff, because his introduction is at the carnival, where he buys it from that guy. Yeah. Yeah. So they cut to the first flashback. So now we should talk about Mark Hamill.
1: We talked a lot about him when we did *Mask of the Phantasm, but if you want to talk more, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. I spoke very glowingly. Here, I don't think his voice works. To be honest,
2: it's not that he's not trying, but he's doing a different voice. Not, Not just because he can't go as high as he used to, which just comes with age. But the problem is he's already done a more subtle Joker if you watch Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. That voice, I think, is a lot closer to what this would have worked. But there are points here where it almost sounds like Mark Hamill can't get his mouth around the dialogue, which is a problem with Alan Moore. I think his trying to bring his words to an actor's mouth, It's not the easiest thing in the world. But I don't think his voice worked. But at the same time, I can't say, oh, X could have done the voice better. You know, I can't plug John DiMaggio from Under the Red Hood and put him in here.
0: Who's in this movie as well.
2: (laughs) Yes, he is. But (laughs) it's disappointing. And part of it's also, I think they waited too long. Maybe if you did this in the early 2000s, when this still would have been a bit audacious. Because I do think, unfortunately, The Dark Knight does somewhat hinder this movie as far as... In the pulp consciousness, what a Batman-Joker story can be. His Joker, I don't think is great. But when, in the flashbacks where you just hear Mark Hamill, I think he's good there. When he's just doing his normal voice. Because we don't really hear Mark Hamill do that in most of his animation. A lot of it is he's putting on a voice or an accent. But yeah, his Joker does not work for me at all. And I hate saying that.
0: I hate to agree with Matt, but I do I don't think I dislike it as much, but it's definitely not the Joker we've come to love from the animated series and from the Arkham games. I think Arkham City, he was his magnum opus in the way of delivering a story through his voice that was just superb. I'm glad he came back for it because I don't think I'd want to see somebody else do it. But yeah, it's years too late, unfortunately, for his voice to have the caliber that it did when they were right in the heart of this series.
2: It's also very funny that they were so dead set on getting Conroy and Hamill for this, but did not do it for Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. They got got Peter Weller and Michael Emerson. Who do a damn good job. Yeah, well, we'll save that for another conversation, but (laughs) uh, it's just very strange because that, to me, is more iconic than this story. You know, it's sort of 1A and 1B. But, yeah, and like I said, though, I can't say that any actor – any Joker voice, because there's a lot of good ones. I mentioned Mike Emerson, John DiMaggio did a deeper voice Joker, sort of a, a husky one. Brent Spiner voiced the Joker, and he was pretty good on Young Justice. So it's it's the hamlet of supervillains, where everyone has their own take. Some are much more popular than others. <laughs> but yeah, th- this is very much the, the story. But not to go on too much of a tangent, they do change some stuff. In the scene with the, fl- the first flashback where he's talking to his wife, after he bombs on stage. It just ends like a normal conversation. But in the book, and this is part of the Joker being an unreliable narrator, there's a still of her smiling at him, and she's got, like, this creepy Joker-esque smile. Yeah. Which lends credibility to the idea you know, the Joker's crazy and he could be making this up. But, yeah, that that ambiguity and the possibility of this being a fabrication is not presented in, the, in this movie because it's played so straight.
0: Yeah, Garrett, this is where... It came from the whole, if I have a backstory, I prefer it to be multiple choice. This is where that came from, is this story.
2: Yeah, the whole thing of Keith uh-huh. Ledger's Joker telling
0: different stories. Yeah, that I knew.
2: Yeah, that, that yeah. comes from um, and, and this book is actually somewhat made canon by three Jokers that Jeff Johns wrote. Yeah. Where they reveal that, because a little bit later on they talk about how his wife and unborn child die, and that kind of gives him the impetus to go along with the plan. It's revealed that they were put into witness protection, For their own safety, and that in that book, it's revealed that Batman has always known the Joker's real name, Mm -hmm. but has never, never
1: said it, which,
2: you know, I think that story's pretty good, but I kind of like this. I've always just preferred this being its own thing.
1: Matt, I find it interesting that you said that you don't mind Hamill when they're doing the backstory, because that's when he's supposed to be younger. But again, that that begs the question. The comic also never really says how far back these
2: flashbacks are supposed Mm. to take place. Batman has a line at the beginning where he mentions that the Joker's been in Arkham for two years. So does that mean he caught him once and that's the first encounter they've had? It's never definitively said how long this Joker's been in existence. So also part of it is just that Mark Hamill can't do his Joker voice from the 90s. He just physically, he can't get that pitch anymore. They'd have to do the South Park thing where they raise his voice.
1: (laughs) So we're seeing more of Joker's backstory as Batman invades the pool hall where he thinks that the Joker is, he hears from one of the criminals that Batman might think that criminals are scared of him. They're terrified of the Joker. What are you guys thinking of this backstory here? I mean, come on, Matt, we reviewed a backstory when we did Freddy Krueger. We see these backstories a lot, and I know this was a comic book. It was of its own thing. But are you guys really driving with this backstory and how we're seeing exactly how Joker came to be? I'm not going to say it's great, but what Alan Moore came up with I think is plausible, but it's not definitive.
2: And that's what I like the most about it. This is a very plausible origin for the Joker. It's the personification of the one bad day. But I, I also don't think it's their wise to not make this official canon in any mainstream line. But I just think this story works so much better on the page. Like I said, because you can spend more time really analyzing the artwork. And it has a lot more staying power. As a movie, it feels very serialized. Scenes just happen because they're in that sequential order in the graphic novel.
0: I like this as one of Joker's possible origins quite a bit. The one bad day, being able to push somebody over the edge is, I think, is an important thing in comics, in society. Something about that resonates with me. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe that says something. But I do. And like Matt said, being able to take the page on your own pace helps quite a bit because these flashbacks I really take my time with. And I feel more empathy reading it than I do watching it, which is really shitty because you want to love and feel for everything he's going through, but you don't get any empathy for a comedian when he's going through what he is here, and and that's the shitty part.
1: I have to be honest with you guys. I do not remember the last time I had reviewed something for this show where I've been this bored.
0: <laughs> I am seriously
1: bored as fuck watching at, at this point.
0: Catwoman was only a few weeks ago. Catwoman
1: was – you say what you want about Catwoman. That was at least interesting <laughs> to me. I laughed my ass off watching Catwoman for the wrong reasons. Here, I am I not finding did. any of this. It's just boring to me. Maybe I do need to read that book. I, I flipped through it a couple times because I had a friend who had Death in the Family and he had this. And I devoured Death in the Family. It does make me want to read the book. I'll say that much. But just watching this movie, like, I could not be more bored. What do, we, uh, what do we think of this Joker performance on stage as Gordon shouts Barbara's name? Matt, does this go back to what you were saying, that this would have been much better if Hamill had done this in the 90s? He just sounds old and tired. Yeah.
2: And it's sad.
1: This is not how I wanted him to go out.
2: He's like the Ric Flair of Jokers. He had his perfect opportunity, and unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. Now, having said that, we skipped over Barbara Gordon getting shot. And we do, we do have to discuss that. I don't get the implication that he raped her. Because if he did and he really wanted to drive Joker uh Gordon crazy, he would have also shown the pictures of him doing that. And it's and this is a big deal in comics because it could have taken Batgirl off the table completely, or, or I should say it could have taken off Barbara Gordon, but not only did she rebound, Oracle is a much better character than Batgirl ever has been. She's a lot more interesting. She's a lot more inspiring to a lot of people. Like, there's a lot of, you know, I have friends that are handicapped and really look up to her as a character, because it's the ultimate thing of, I'm not going to let what happened to me ruin my life, which I think is a, a very great message. And it's sort of the, the, the tragedy of it is that it was Gotham City saying, you don't get to quit without us taking a piece of you. And that's what the Joker does by shooting her. And this has been, honestly, the shooting was done better in Arkham Knight as a hallucination <laughs> that it is in this movie. Yeah. The only difference in that is Gordon's not in the room but because he's there in the book. And this is all all of Hamill's dialogue, you know, the here's to crime, all that stuff, even the song, all this is lifted almost verbatim from the book. The only dialogue that's really changed is when he's buying the carnival and he talks about how like, oh, it's falling apart. and It smells like piss. In the book, he, he tells jokes about like kids could die on these rides. The, the, the Board of Health went past this. I think that's actually funnier than just terrible jokes about the place smelling like piss, which again... Brian Azzarello is not above the juvenile,
1: but all in all, I'm not infatuated with this movie at all. More of Joker's backstory. As he says, maybe he should have been a clown instead of a comedian. Batman shows up and he gets scared and falls into what I'm putting as the same waste that Halle Berry's Catwoman fell into. (laughs) And then starts laughing. (laughs) Here comes my favorite part of the movie. Batman fights a bunch of carnies. Yeah, you like that? They're beating up the disabled and the. Audience. I love this fucking. I, I love this scene. Yes, I just said that. He fights a bunch of carnies, but this is this is all pretty good actually. I can't say I love anything in this movie, but of all things, this was this was the one part that actually got me laughing. Joker gets into the picture, and Batman once again takes care of him before finding Gordon, who tells Batman to go after Joker and go after him by the book.
0: This here is important to me like nothing else. Because depending on which way you want to look at it and who Joker is trying to break, because he's, you know, Gordon's going to be easy to break. I mean, he shot his daughter. He, at minimum, undressed and took pictures of his naked daughter who was covered in blood after he shot her, sitting there, you know, talking about, I don't know, it's a hard that the spine is broken. I mean, just little things that he did. Gordon should be the one to break after all this, and he can't break Jim Gordon. That through all this, naked in a cage, hobbled, he's going to crawl out in tears to Batman and still be on the side of the righteous to say, do it by the book. you got to fucking do it by the book. That is really important for how I take the end of this movie.
1: I don't get it. Are you saying that's a good thing or that's a bad thing?
0: I think it's important. It's important. That Jim Gordon, that he is still upholding doing things right. That he is not broken. That this is that one bad day and he's not going to snap for
2: it. This is the boat scene from The Dark Knight, except this is actually good. Where it's... <laughs> It's proving the Joker. It's disproving the Joker's notion that anyone can break if they just have one bad day. There are people who are incorruptible, and Gordon is one of them. Like, they're, they're, not only does Joker shoot Barbara Gordon, there's a story called No Man's Land where he actually kills Gordon's wife, and he yeah. still he still doesn't kill him. He shoots him in the kneecap, but he, he can't bring himself to actually kill him because he is the he is the ultimate representation of good in a city that really doesn't have that true lawful good presence. Because Batman's more of the chaotic good. If you
0: look at that little uh, the little flow chart.
1: Joker has my favorite line in the movie when he tells Batman, by clinging to reality, you are denying the reality of the situation. Batman beats him up again, and he makes it clear that Gordon didn't go crazy. Ordinary people don't crack. Batman doesn't take it further, telling Joker he doesn't want to hurt him, and that he doesn't know what hit him, and that this is nuts. He doesn't have to be alone. What are you guys feeling about this? So, Adam, are we at the point now where everything you said earlier is coming to fruition, or we still have a little ways to go here?
0: I go all the way to the very, very end, literally the end scene. But I like the fight, though. Okay, technically, in the graphic novel, but whatever, it's only 48 pages. It's not, it's an oversized edition. It's not even an eight-page giant. They put music notes to the I Go Looney. That doesn't mean I needed a five-minute Mark Hamill singing I Go Looney. Like, okay, I downloaded the song, but it get pretty cringy. When they go into that room and it's, his exact same apartment but it's flipped upside down he took batman to the point where his life has been turned upside down and they fight right through it and i fucking love that all the way to the end when joker finally retrieves his gun pulls it out pulls a trigger and it's a prop gun and he's just god damn it that god damn it is the best vocal performance that mark hamill does in this entire movie i fucking love that
2: well it's sort of a it's a Slight tease of masking of the Phantasm, where he's like, well,
0: for once, I'm stuck without a punchline. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Joker tells a rambling story about jumping buildings, and Batman laughs with him as credits roll. Okay, so here. All the way to the end.
0: Here. Oh, yeah, oh. Yeah. okay. So, in the book, Joker's telling the story, right? You're going to shine the flashlight across. As this happens... I will never forgive them for not putting this in the movie and not drawing it. You see a car pull up, and you see this because you see headlights. So you see this beam of light at their feet while Joker's doing this and telling this story. And he tells it, and Batman, it gets to the end. Like, the joke is the exact same thing. And Batman, you get the (laughs) hit. Batman starts laughing and reaches to Joker. Here, it looks like he reaches and puts his hands on Joker's shoulder. In the book, all you see is him reaching to Joker. And then it pans down and they're both laughing, and then there's only one laugh, and then those headlights that you see are gone. Just like the joke, the killing joke, to me, Batman kills Joker in this moment. It is the seven ending. It's the ending of seven where Joker won. He got Batman.
1: Matt, did you take it the same way?
2: I don't have a definitive take on it, but there's also a very key detail that is missing that shows to me that these, the writers and the, the team didn't quite understand the book. The last illustration there is a literal line in the sand between Batman and Joker and the rain washes it out which means they are they are becoming one person they are one and the same despite being polar opposites that detail reinforces Adams and a lot of people's theory that Batman kills the Joker because there is no more divide between the two of them you also read it as what, only one can can leave that place i'm more inclined to think that he does kill the Joker, largely because this is a one-off story and you can get away with that, which would make it, though, a great parallel if they did what I suggested of doing also the man Who laughs as the first half, because that story also ends with Batman and Joker facing off, as they often do. Batman considers dropping him into poison water to kill him, but he can't bring himself to do it, so he throws him back into Arkham. Juxtaposing that with this and really... Emphatically saying that he kills him because it's handled so awkwardly. Not only is the the rain washing away the line gone, it just cuts to credits with no music, which is immensely off-putting. Someone even said in the theater, very audibly, that's it. Like that was the, that that was, (laughs) (laughs) it was a very strange choice to end the movie that way and not, and leave out that very specific detail that is so important because it is bookending the story. Weather and rain, winds and the leaves, nature, order and chaos, it's all there. And it's at start and the end. Starts, but in the movie, it's, it's not in the ending.
1: All right. That does it for Batman, The Killing Joke, not just The Killing Joke. Long-awaited adaptation of a very popular comic on a scale of 1 to 10. What do we give Batman, The Killing Joke? Uh, Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. Uh, to quote Mr. Horse from
2: Ren and Stimpy, no, sir, I don't like it. For something that was immensely hyped, th- this thing, you would have thought this was a new Christopher Nolan Batman movie with the way people were talking about h- how excited they were. It is, much like BBS, the word I use is fascinating in the choices that they made to not just pad this out, but to rebel against the criticisms that the graphic novel does possess. And they even talked about how they admitted it was risky. Borderline controversial, but for something that had all the fan support behind it and the people that fans wanted to see it, I guess this is the geek personification of be careful what you wish for, because I have not talked to a single person, whether in that theater or in my discourse with others that gave this movie any kind of a glaring endorsement. That includes people who've read the story. That includes first-time viewers. Like I said, the guy who yelled, that's it, clearly has not read the graphic novel and might have said so as much as we were leaving. Hell, that might have been my brother for all we know because he knows nothing about comics. Unfortunately, this was at least Batman v Superman. I could have very strong conversations about it and I could see the choices. Not all of them worked, but there was an attempt to tell a new kind of story. This was an adaptation without the soul, which is crazy considering how much of this is a translation. But there is a difference between a translation and an adaptation. An adaptation is the good one. That's where you take something in one medium and you transfer it to another medium, but you both keep the spirit, but you do something new with it. And we'll talk about that with Stephen King, because hell, we talked about that with The Shining, how that can go wrong in one case with one approach and another can do it to perfection. It's all how you do it in the... The makeup process. It was 75 minutes of excruciating pain. The killing joke was that I paid to go see this in the theater, and I felt I felt empty. Disappointment's not the right word because, like I said, this is not one of it's not one of my personal favorite Batman stories. But I get why it's as popular as it is. But it, it wasn't worth it. I just I hate to say it and. I think Alan Moore was right that his shit just should not be adapted and we need to stop trying. Unless you're going to do something radically different like the Watchmen series, which I think is brilliant. I and mean, that's one of the best TV shows, I think, of the decade. All in all, this was a bore, to quote Garrett. And at points, it was kind of infuriating. So I'm going to give this <laughs> the same score that I gave Batman and
1: Robin, of all things.
2: I'm going to give this a 3 on 10. Uh,
1: Goudreau didn't find much to like about this. Adam Bunch, the big fan of this comic. What is your score?
0: Yeah, i got to echo a lot of Matt's sentiments, unfortunately. You know, I, I was looking forward to this quite a bit. The nuances in the book just are not here. And when you have such a slavish adaptation, you lose something. You can't pace it the way that a reader is going to pace it. And when you lose that, you need to find a way to translate it differently. You have to make the pages that you know we pore over You gotta slow those down. You gotta let us pour over in the medium. And they don't do it this way. The voice acting is okay. I mean, Kevin Conroy is always gonna be Batman. I mean, I guess you can go that low and gravelly and it's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna hurt. Mark Hamill, he gives a valiant effort. He's not up to his, his old Joker voice. You know, he's not horrible, but he's not, not what we would have liked to see. The opening 30 minutes is so forgettable, but it's also, it's insulting to what it does for me. It's mind boggling that. Somebody signed off on that, that somebody looked at the script, looked at the storyboards, looked at the prelim, all the way freaking through, and nobody fucking raised a hand. Nobody had the balls to say, hang on, let's do something different. Once we get into the killing joke, it starts. Well, I love the Arkham scene. I love the battle Joker's Funhouse. But everything in the middle just doesn't hold the same power the crippling of barbara gordon has no emotional weight and that is the crux of the story that jim gordon doesn't fall to but batman does fall to and it's not there man this is just yeah it's it's disappointing after especially after so many really really well done dc animated movies jay oliva directed a great slew of them, and they got a different director on this one, and I didn't think he was just run over by everybody else in this production that did what they wanted to do, and it suffers for it. I think there's worse ones out there, but it is such a disappointment compared to what it should have been, and that's the unfortunate part, so i watched it a few times, and there's some sequences I will watch, but doesn't hold up to anything. Not quite as low as Matt, but I'm close. I'm going to give this a 4. 4 on 10.
1: 4 from Bunch. Guys, recently we reviewed Prey, and I had mentioned I watched the Comic-Con panel to that, and obviously they shot, you know, the intro to the movie, and then right after the movie ended, and after the movie ended, people were standing, they were cheering, and, you know, it was like a very successful screening. I wish I was a fly on the wall. I wish there was footage out there of what the mood in that room was like after this was over, (laughs) and that Comic-Con panel could not have been pretty, judging by the question that Goudreau outlined earlier. Look... You guys were looking forward to this, and you gave it a low score. What the hell do you think I'm going to give this? Like I said earlier, you know, I could go with a lot of things. You guys keep bringing up Catwoman. And the reason why, I'll say it again, I went with Catwoman. It was never boring to me. And I think, good or bad, a movie's worst sin is if it's boring. We pick mm-hmm. movies for a reason. You know, me and Matt and Adam, we go through these like with a fine-tooth comb, and we're like, okay, what can we talk about here what what is it in this series that we can talk about and when i look at this i went through the plot because i literally had almost zero opinion as i was going through this because i was so fucking bored and look the animation matt had bad things to say about it i thought it was fine i'm not saying people didn't work hard on this i know mark hamill held out for it and kudos to him for living up to his word and actually coming back and doing this but like matt when Joker appeared on screen, again, I had to look three times because that so recognizable voice that we saw and heard in Mask of the Phantasm was just absent here. He sounded bored too. You know, I just don't think anybody's heart was in this, and I think they just made it as a fan service, and man, that is the worst way to make a movie, as Zack Snyder. I found this movie to be boring. I found this movie to be repulsive. I found this movie to just be a really really low point of this series and we've had a few low points Batman, batman and robin included but like matt i want to go even lower than batman and robin i want to give this a two there was nothing nothing a couple scenes that i outlined here and there but really this was a chore to get through and god damn it adam if this is repaying for the future's king adaptations i i submit sir i am sorry <laughs> 2 out of 10 for me. But if this was bad, what are we going to think about next week's film? Another movie that is so polarizing. It seems like every time we talk DC, we're going to get just the polarizing, polarizing, polarizing. And when you talk polarizing, you've got to talk about Suicide Squad. Although it seems to be pretty universally not liked by the majority of fans. What are you guys looking forward to when we talk about Suicide Squad next week?
0: I'm looking forward to a lively discussion of anything. I saw this movie in theaters. I think more times than I'm going to care to admit, which is funky because it has a take. It was different. I mean, Suicide Squad was really supposed to be something. Um, I guess it says something that most of the cast is gone and they change a director for its sequel or offshoot or whatever you want to call it. But I remember being extremely excited for it. That first trailer was fucking masterful. If they could give an award for trailers, I don't know, whatever it may be, that would deserve it. Because that initial one was a work of genius. Enough so that they took this movie out of the fucking filmmakers' hands and gave it to the fucking trailer-cutting team to recut the movie. So it's going to be an interesting discussion, I'll say that.
2: Adam's correct that they, they, this movie had a take had like 80 of them. If you listen to the production (laughs) history, I I have a funny story to tell, but I'll I'll save it for the next show. I I will say this. After Batman v Superman came out and everybody and their mother had an opinion on it, Suicide Squad was only a couple months away and I said, just relax everyone. DC will course correct with this movie. This will be the palate cleanser. Little did I know that the arguing would, not only would it not cease, it would kind of get magnified.
0: (laughs) Intensify.
2: So fuck me and my opinions, I guess.
1: (laughs) And for people who remember, I saw an early screening of this and I went to binge and I actually raved about it way back when I gave it a pretty positive score. Uh, I have not rewatched this since. So I am also looking forward to that discussion next week because I don't know how I'm going to feel. You know, I, I remember it coming out. I remember liking it at that screening and then just hearing just the complete backlash against it. So my revisit should be interesting because I haven't seen it since. But I do remember opinions on it And once we get to it I still haven't seen the second Suicide Squad movie So Suicide Squad will be interesting And I cannot wait for that show next week So until next week When we talk Suicide Squad Memories can be vile, repulsive little brutes Like podcasts I suppose Thank you gentlemen Good night All my friends are slow Wait for them to ask you who you know
0: Separating the boxes is still gonna cause a massive surge. I'll have to be there, but you guys should think about getting clear. We're with you till it's done.
1: Honestly, I think we're all gonna be dead way before that. And you know what? I don't oh, mind. It's an honorable end, but we gotta shut Steppenwolf down. Superman's a no-show. You got no powers, no offense. This guy might be working for the enemy, we don't know. You're tripping over your feet and mine. Oof, you're gorgeous, you're fierce, and strong, and mm. I know we went to war with the Amazons, but that was before my time. And you know what? I don't want to die. I'm young. There's shit that I want to do. I just feel like I never really embraced the sea or the land. I've been alone my whole life, being part of some bigger like this. Maybe I'm scared because I'm meant to. I think that was beautiful. You say a word about this, you'll meet every prana I know.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast. This place is amazing, y'all. Join us next week for an entirely new review.
1: Hollywood, here we come! Ha <laughs> ha!
0: The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. I hate everything you just said. Edited by Garrett.
1: What is it with you? What made you what you are?
0: voiceovers by Adam.
2: That's what a dose of reality will do to you. It's why I never touch the
0: stuff.
1: I find it waters down the hallucinations.
0: The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
2: I was trying to get you there.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Good. <laughs> As he cracks. Oh, baby, I should have beer, huh? I'm off I'll, tomorrow, I'll drink, tonight. I'm just
2: drinking seltzer water. I'm taking
1: uh, seltzer Oh. Water.
2: White. Oh, okay. wh- has White Claw, so I, I just have that.
1: You are drinking White Claw? Yeah. Goudreau. You are oh, so gay.
0: God. Oh, wait. Yes. <laughs> he is gay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm good. James Bond.
2: They didn't
1: have any Trulies. I was disappointed. He didn't. He's uh, disappointed (laughs) they didn't have any Trulies. She's putting her head in her hands, and she said that if James Bond were a person, he'd slap you. (laughs) You guys ready? I am so ready. Ready, ready. All right. This shouldn't take that long, right? You think? Every time we say that, we go like three hours on one thing. All right. All
0: right. Booyah.